selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week as ever we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line today we're delighted to welcome Spike columnist and stand-up comedian Simon Evans. Hello. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing the German farmers' revolt, the post office scandal, and the trigger warnings on James Bond. So, Germany's farmers are up in arms. They've been blocking roads, blocking city centres, highways, all kinds of things, essentially uh, bringing the country to a halt. Now, ostensibly, this is about a cut to certain subsidies on their on their fuel and on new agricultural vehicles. But Tom, as ever, there's probably something a bit deeper than that mm-hmm. going on here. Oh, no, definitely. And very similar to the farmers' revolts that we've seen in the Netherlands and elsewhere. Undergirding a lot of it is environmental regulations, often things that originate in the EU, and just a general sense that farmers, as well as many other people in the kind of real economy, the people who are actually involved in, you know, producing food, selling actual goods, producing energy and so on, are just being completely overlooked, if not pushed around and squashed by various governments across Europe. And it's been a remarkable kind of assertion of their right to protest and also how central they are to an economy like Germany's or to any other. I think it's been a a fascinating demonstration of the fact that various governments try to push these people around, act like Mm. they don't matter, they're on their way to a kind of carbon-free future, whether they like it or not. But, you know, when you get a few thousand tractors in the middle of the road, you can really make governments um, sit up and take notice of you. So there already has been an attempt to kind of ameliorate the situation on the part of the government. They've done a kind of partial climb down on some of the specific measures which had Mm. triggered this particular revolt. But it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. They're going to have their biggest day of protest on Monday, where, again, they're expecting to see thousands of tractors show up in Berlin. Um, But I think it's definitely part of a a broader European story, definitely, of people in the real economy who've often been on the receiving end of the kind of lofty climate targets of the elites, demonstrating that they're not willing to part with it anymore. And long may that continue, definitely. Definitely. Simon, I mean, you know, we often seem to forget that, you know, the the world is powered by uh, things like fossil fuels. You know, there's a material basis to 
uh, our wealth. I mean, it's bad enough that we forget how important fossil fuels, oil and gas are, but it seems even more insane to forget how important food is. You know, people are, <laughs> you see these farmers holding up placards saying no farmers, no food. And you think, how, is, how could any government forget that? Yeah, I think there has been a tendency, perhaps certainly there was before COVID for some years to think in terms of um, a, a general drift away from some fairly traditional propositions such as food security being a you know an important part of a government's job and uh, towards a sort of globalised uh, mindset which thought that it didn't really matter whether we got our, our meat or our corn, our cereal crops, our vegetables from from Holland or from or from in in our own uh, backyard or whether they were imported from Argentina or China or whatever and um and I think that was possibly uh, a foolish uh, a complacency that set in with many years of of prosperity and the and the smooth running of global uh, trade routes and so on and I think the farmers are in a pretty strong position uh, now post covid and post the semi-collapse of uh, of globalised prosperity and supply routes and the inflation and so on that we've seen. Half-empty supermarket shelves are not uncommon now in Hove. Um, and um, I'm resisting, obviously, any kind of comment on Brexit one way or the other as an explanation, but it's obviously happening on the continent as well. It's also interesting to notice, I think, that in the on the continent, the farming community, for want of a better and perhaps more uh, robust expression are particularly well organized and and tend to fight their corner in a way that you don't generally see in in the United Kingdom very much. Um, my parents live in in East Anglia, which is largely a farming uh, region, and um, you hardly really notice them you know from 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 one visit to the next. The fields are vast now and are largely um automated all the old pubs their local pub is called the jolly farmers but i honestly have not seen one jolly or otherwise in there for many years you know and it it feels like it's almost become an abstract proposition that somehow this land is used to generate foodstuffs but obviously on the continent you know the um the french farmers are very well known for uh being more than happy to block the roads to the ports and the docks if they don't get their way the dutch farmers quite recently were equally vociferous and um and now the germans are showing their strength and i have to say i i quite like it <laughs> you know it does remind you as you say <laughs> who does the real work and who has a pretty fundamental, you know, pinch point that they can apply if if they feel that they are being expected to put up with too much of uh, of the of the you know the yes the net zero thing is definitely part of it and also just generally a disregard for people whose livelihood is not perhaps quite as glamorous or as twenty first century as as others that you know capture people's imagination a bit more. Yeah, and and Tom certainly in. Um Holland and you know you brought up the Dutch farmers there we've seen how um, politicized this has become how mm-hmm. actually it's been a fuel of populist politics more broadly going beyond the sort of farming issue mm-hmm. no definitely and it's been interesting as you were saying Simon about how this isn't something that you would normally see um, in Britain but it's something that you see in continental Europe you read a lot of the press coverage and it's often talking about this is not the sort of thing that Germany would usually yeah. <laughs> experience that they tend to um, not rise up in this kind of way in the way that their neighbors in France might do um, but it, I think it is also kind of reminiscent of the fact when push comes to shove, people feel like they've got no 
option. And even in the UK, I was reminded of things like the fuel duty protests in the early 2000s, which yeah. also involved farmers to a certain degree, but it was mainly hauliers. I mean, they brought the country to a standstill in a mm. way that Just Stop Oil or all these other disruptive protesters could never dream of doing because they actually have a pinch point and actually have some, you know, have some muscle to flex in a way mm. that those groups certainly don't. And as a consequence of that, you know, woe betide any chancellor who's tried to unfreeze fuel duty ever since. It's become very, very significant. So you, you definitely get a sense in which various different people from various different walks of life, but kind of united by the fact that they do work in that real economy, they do really matter, but not treated as such, are sort of finding their voice, mm. are coming together. We saw it with the Gilets Jaunes, we've seen it with the farmers' protests, we saw it with the truckers' revolt, although that was in the context of COVID, I think it had many of the similar sort of features to it. Um, and the other thing that's fascinating, um, but also quite repetitive about the way in which these movements are being received by the various governments that they're protesting against is just the reflexive alt-right, far-right slur, which is yeah. being thrown at them in every single situation. And I think that's been really, really revealing. I mean, there was one article in The Guardian which talked about not just these farming protests, but also various other sort of strikes that are going on and industrial action that's going on in Germany. I think the the railways have been striking this week. There's also been various hauliers who are um, in open revolt against various kind of road charges and things like this. And the headline or the stand first was something along the lines of strikes in Germany could be opportunity for the far right, <laughs> which I think tells you something about, on the one hand, any time that you have working class people, kind of lower middle class people, the kind of unglamorous people of the economy and society re- revolt against the establishment, it's now instantly greeted with all the fascists are here, which I think is very telling. Um, But also how these movements are completely divorced from the left in general. Mm. They don't seem to be particularly interested in them. They can't lead them even if they wanted to. And they tend to fall in behind with various members of the kind of more centrist establishment with condemning them as just, you know, the AFD in tractors. It seems to have been the case in Germany at this point. So it's really fascinating about these protests, how we've seen them crop up everywhere, but also how they seem to be eliciting almost exactly the same scornful response Mm. from every government that they're agitating against. I think it is fascinating to see these kinds of revolts crop up in Germany because, you know, it is one of those countries, as you you said, Tom, it's not a country that normally revolts, but even the rise of the AFD is very unexpected. A couple of years ago, even during COVID, people were saying Germany is a country that's got everything right you know, they've followed the exact kind of every sort of liberal playbook that every, you know, every bien pensant centrist thinks it's an amazing country and it's so beautifully governed. And now everything's falling apart. You know, it's uh, deindustrializing thanks to high energy costs. Everyone is on strike <laughs> this week. <laughs> you know, they can't, they can't grow enough food because of the, the farmers are in revolt. I mean, Simon, do you think there's something in, in, in that? You know, the way this is... Germany should be the model, it's supposed to be the model country for um, our own political class, but it's all gone a bit wrong quite quickly. It's interesting, isn't it? It does remind you a little bit of Man United after Alex Ferguson left. You know, they held on for as long as they could with Angela Merkel, <laughs> and they were aware that they had a pretty unusual talent there, although, of course, a lot of the problems they're now facing were, you know, sown by her. 
Um, but it is, yeah, you're right. There was a famous book, wasn't there? Something about Germany, you know, why why Germany is a grown up country or something, and how we can all benefit from it. Yeah, or, Germans you know, that, do it better. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm interested in in that aspect of things going wrong, and obviously the iconic moment in that regard was Donald Trump telling Germany that it was putting too many of its eggs in the Russian energy basket, and and the famous clip of high-ranking, sophisticated, well-dressed uh, people in sort of grey cashmere laughing down their noses at this ridiculous buffoon. And, uh, and that turning out to be true very, very quickly. There is also that thing which Tom hinted at, which in particular seems to affect um, all modern political political leadership when they are confronted by men who drive large vehicles protesting, that they immediately reach for the far right epithet and and that is quite a new thing it used to be yeah i certainly remember maybe i'm going back further than i, I realized because obviously when you get to a certain age the time becomes very uh sort of uh contingent but i remember generally speaking you know protesters were, were usually categorized and dismissed as far left commie agitators that sort of thing but almost every trucking rally were all these gilets jaunes obviously in um in canada the famous uh protest which was against uh, vaccination passports and so on um, which Trudeau tried to characterise as, as racist and far-right and fascist. It, it's an extraordinary leap to, to, to claim that anyone who is simply trying to resist really quite radical progressive change, you know, must therefore be hard right. I just don't think it washes. I don't think anyone's buying that at all. And I think that's a really wrong-headed way of trying to, uh, I mean, apart from anything else, and I read this in, in Spike's own recent article on it, that I wouldn't have had it at my fingertips otherwise, but they know the voting intentions of most of these drivers, uh, farmers, and they are, broadly speaking, centre-right, Christian Democrats, uh, that sort of thing. The, um, you know, they're not, yeah, they're not socialists, but, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're hard-working people who know the, uh, the 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 value of a of a mark or a euro, but they're 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 certainly not. Um, there's no kind of anti-immigrant sort of side to this, which is obviously what what hard right far right means now in Europe. It's not a, a, an economic proposition. It's about race. So it's just ridiculous. It extraordinarily smear a, a campaign. This week, the UK government has announced new legislation to exonerate the 900 or so sub postmasters who were wrongfully uh, convicted. Uh, in the post office horizon scandal. Now, Tom, a lot of people have remarked on the fact that it's taken seemingly forever for these sub postmasters to get any kind of justice. I mean, the first wrongful convictions were in 1999. Uh, attention was brought to the faults of the horizon IT system in 2003 in the courts. And yet here it is 2024. It's taken for this to really capture the attention of the political class. I mean, what have you made of that? I think that's been that's been the number one question, hasn't it? Really, because mm. obviously at this point it now seems like there is going to be redress. There is going to be an mm. attempt to right the wrongs. Obviously, that's going to be a pretty fraught process, given the fact they're having to pass some quite unprecedented legislation to try and start to deal with this problem. And even so, there will be people who fall through the cracks. But the fact that it took that long, because that's what many of the sub postmasters will really complain about most, is the fact that this is, in some of their cases, more than a decade, fifteen years of their life, just completely ruined as a consequence of a computer telling yeah. them that they were a thief and the authorities siding with the computer, effectively. Mm. Um, it's not to say that it wasn't reported on. I think that's one thing that's worth saying. I mean, Private Eye did some great stuff on it. Um, there was even some numbers people put out, the number of articles that various newspapers have written about it. It wasn't under-reported on, yeah. necessarily. What was fascinating was that it never really caught fire politically. No mm. opposition ever jumped on it. And in the context of 
the sorts of scandals that we've become accustomed to in recent years, you know, most famously, you know, Boris Johnson, who finally opened the inquiry into this back in 2020, was brought down because he ate cake at the wrong time with the wrong people or whatever. It kind of gives you a sense of how trivial our political class is or how cut off they are from the people that they're supposed to represent. It seems like it's one of those issues where it combines the fact that it deals with a group of people who are kind of unglamorous as far as the political class and to some extent the media are concerned. These kind of lower middle class, small business people, you know, save enough money to invest in something like their own post office um, and then get completely put through the ring. It's also quite a complicated story. It's not something you can fire off a quick Twitter thread about or do a kind of sassy, you know, social media message or intervention at Prime Minister's questions and get loads of high fives for doing so. It takes a while to explain what has gone on, the backstory Mm. and so on. Um, But at the same time, as soon as you explain it to anyone, the profound injustice of it is so apparent. It's incredible that it fell to really just a handful of backbenchers to properly pursue this. But I think it just really speaks to that chasm that exists between what we assume politicians should do, such as righting wrongs like this, um, taking up issues when their constituents get in contact with them about horrendous things that are taking place, um, and what they actually do, which is a lot of party political manoeuvring and, as I say, just making sassy interventions in the chamber. Um, but also that kind of sense that people quite understandably kind of assume that things like this really shouldn't happen, certainly shouldn't yeah. happen on the scale in which they've taken place. You had literally hundreds of people in, in this instance who were having to sort of do battle with this system, a sclerotic legal system, a sort of strange combination of the state and this, these various companies um, no justice whatsoever. People being sent to prison. There was one woman who was sent to prison whilst pregnant. Mm. The only evidence against her, supposedly, for this theft was the fact that the computer had said that she'd stolen it. There was yeah. no other evidence whatsoever, and yet they didn't believe her. So it's a really damning indictment, definitely, of our, of our politics, to a certain extent on media, but as I say, I don't think they dropped the ball nearly as much as anyone else. And a kind of sense of who really matters in society and what issues matter mm. and how trivial a lot of things have become. I think it's a kind of potent cocktail of a lot of those things. Yeah, Simon, what have you made of this? I mean, particularly, do you think the, these, the victims are just the wrong kind of victims? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Well, I, obviously, at some point, there was a sense they were the wrong kind of victims. But in terms of the ITV drama, of course, they were exactly the right kind of victims, because I think everyone felt an extraordinary sympathy and empathy with them. Uh, we watched three of the four episodes last night, funnily enough, before I knew I was going to be doing this podcast. So that was lucky. And um, very gripping, very well done, felt very authentic. Um, most of the casting seemed to have been done to attempt to capture the reality rather than have a sort of Netflix rewrite kind of version of events. And um, and I think I, I think both my wife and myself felt uh, quite really quite moved and, and angry on these people's behalf. You know, it, it felt very much like the sort of thing you could imagine yourself getting tangled up in. Um, every so often, I mean, I have on a smaller scale at the moment an ongoing dispute with a you know a private parking contract to one of these people who catch you overstaying your welcome in a service station, you know, and then start sending you ever escalating fines before you know what you're doing. There's no one you can reply to. There's a lot of that in the modern world, and I think a lot of people recognise watching that uh, Horizon processing unit sitting under the desk in the in the post office, um, the sub you know, sub post office counters. I think. Oh, God, I've felt a certain kind of anxiety because there are things like that in my life, you know, (laughs) and you just think if that started to go wrong, I don't know what I would do and I can imagine it happening. So in a funny way, although it didn't like catch light like a a plane crash, you know, due to faulty software or air traffic control going down or something, obviously it felt like it was quite 
local paper kind of territory initially. Actually, now it, it has caught a lot of people's imagination because I think it speaks to a certain kind of anxiety that we all have that automation is taking over. It's very rarely as accountable as we might like. The the, uh, the helplines are very rarely as helpful as you might hope. And um, it really could have been any one of us. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't totally, uh, it's very relatable, let's say that, you know. And also, of course, there has been excellent journalism rumbling on in the background. As other people have said, Computer Weekly, funnily enough, deserves some of the credit. Definitely. And um, Tom, in terms of sort of political ramifications, it has uh, brought people like Ed Davey and Keir Starmer to a lesser extent into the into mm-hmm. the spotlight. Their you know roles have been questioned. I mean, should talk a bit about Ed Davey first of all, particularly as he is someone who is constantly calling for the resignations of of anyone else who puts mm-hmm. a foot wrong. Yeah, I believe there was a Times piece the other day which um, enumerated all the various people he had called to resign over the course of the past four or five years. It's a very long list, um, all for the for the sorts of indiscretions, which sort of pale in comparison to what he's being accused of. Um, now, his defence, and there's probably something in it, is the fact that, you know, I'm only looking at what I'm getting briefed. I mean, that's not doesn't necessarily cover him in glory, but does speak to the fact that because of this relationship that obviously the post office has with the the government given the Mm. fact that the government is the sole shareholder and so on um that they were basically just blindly agreeing with everything that's being put before them even though it's become very clear in recent days that the post office were aware of what was going on increasingly it seems that people even within government were aware of what was going on to an extent um there's the other side to it which has kind of come out today is the fact that there was one of these sub postmasters in his own constituency who tried to contact him at least three times and got absolutely nowhere. Um, meanwhile, his life was just completely falling apart around him. Um, but I, I, at the same time, I think it's important that there's a, an element of scapegoating doesn't creep in, not yeah. because I want to stand up for Ed Davey as such an upstanding politician or whatever. It's more the fact that there's this kind of lack of a recognition that this indifference towards these individuals and this indifference to large sections of society and the injustices that they suffer is not limited to Paul of Ennals at the post office or Ed Davey in Westminster. Mm. This is something that is much broader. And I think there's a little bit of a danger that when you have a big blow up like this, people just kind of are kind of ostentatiously outraged about all these issues for for a couple of days and then mistake that for actually having any real social conscience or having any real concern about these issues. I think the worst thing that could possibly happen in this instance is that it does just become a story for a couple of weeks and then it goes away because it's going to have a very long tail. It's going to be a very messy process. And even then there's going to be a lot of people who won't be properly compensated if you even can be for what's going on. So, um, there's obviously a lot of questions that need to be answered. There's a lot of people who have um, really shown how, for all their kind of lofty talk of public life and the, the standards to which they seemingly hold other politicians when they supposedly are, uh, they're kind of fundamentally failing to even stand up for their own constituents. I think it's important that this doesn't just become about this person needs to give back their CBE. Yeah. We should give Alan Bates a knighthood and everything will be fine. Um there's obviously a sort of much deeper problem, not just where this particular scandal is coming from, but that general indifference towards ordinary people, which I think has been exposed by this particular scam. Yeah, I mean, they solved all banking problems when they sacked that Fred the Shred fellow, you know. Mm, you know exactly. Just get rid of just sack a few people and then move on. <laughs> <laughs> if you're anything like me, your New Year's resolutions usually don't make it to the third week of January. Actually sticking to all those positive habits can often end up feeling like a full-time job. But healthy living is supposed to give you more time and energy to enjoy your life, not less. That's why I've started drinking AG1. 
AG1 is my favorite practical daily nutrition supplement. Just one scoop contains 70 high-quality ingredients, all designed to meet your baseline nutritional needs. Starting off your day with AG1 is the best way to ensure that your body is taken care of, both physically and mentally. AG1 contains a broad spectrum of vitamins, from rhodiola to B vitamins. Those will keep you feeling sharp and focused throughout the day. You'll get that same kick of energy you normally get from caffeine, only without the crash later on in the day. One of the best things about AG1 is that it helps support my immune health. Ingredients like vitamin C, zinc and functional mushrooms have helped me avoid some of those nasty seasonal colds. And that makes it even easier to stick to my other healthy habits. The biggest benefit of AG1 is that it's massively reduced my stress levels. It contains powerful plant extracts, adaptogenic herbs and various antioxidants, which have made maintaining a constant workflow effortless. Keeping on top of everything has never been so easy. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com slash spiked. That's drinkag1.com slash spiked. Check it out. Let's talk about James Bond. Uh, so James Bond has been slapped with a trigger warning. Anyone who attends the new BFI season of Bond will learn that these films contain ideas and language that are of their time, shall we say. Uh, Simon, you wrote a really great column uh, on this this week. I mean, what have you made of it? Well, um, it was interesting that a few people came forward and said, you know, there there are elements in those Bond films that uh, are, are not acceptable nowadays, and um, and possibly, you know, because we've all sort of grown up with them, we have uh, learned to take them with a pinch of salt. But if they're trying to attract young people to the uh, cinema and they see James Bond, there some people say very, very close to raping her pussy galore in order to cure her of her lesbianism, that that might be quite... You can, I can understand that. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. I think what it is, the, um, you know, as time goes on, there is a, uh, there is a huge difference between those of us who have gradually learned to accommodate some of the more dated attitudes that appear in movies like that, and some people who might be encountering old stuff for the first time. The season, I think, was actually intended to celebrate the career of the composer, John Barry, who um, created yeah. a lot of the most famous scores for Bond movies. And there are a few other films in there as well. I think The Ipcrest File and possibly some um, other Michael Caine um, stuff as well. And it's quite interesting in that regard because John Barry's scores, which I love, I have you know a couple of CDs of his, of his soundtracks, are um, emblematic of a certain kind of, you know, excitement about the sexual revolution at the time. And in a way, they are more emphatically dated, but I would say preferable <laughs> to the, <laughs> uh, the kind of extraordinarily uh, kind of grotesque musical displays that come out of, uh, you know, American R&B and, and hip hop and so on now. And yet seem to require no sort of trigger warning at all. You know, the uh, the kind of YouTube videos that really are, are very close to pornography and so on, both in their visual and, and lyrical content. Whereas John Barry's stuff, which, as I say, I think is the linking sort of principle in these movies, is incredibly sort of naive and upbeat and just swinging, baby. You know, it's Austin Powers, but it's... Uh, but it's... I... I 
I do worry, as I said in the article, you know, there is a, there is, I understand why some people might look at you and go, mate, if you don't, if you don't care about trigger warnings, just let it wash over you. It's three seconds on the screen before the movie starts. And I understand why people might think I'm just being a harumphing old bore about it. But as I said in the article, the worry is that the more we bend over to try and accommodate people's vulnerability, weakness, mental um, fragility, the more fragile they become. You know, that all the evidence supports that that concern that we have raised a generation, a couple of generations now, who were not allowed to play outside, who were not allowed to form gangs, who were not allowed to play doctors and nurses, you know, who have who have, have been sort of raised almost in laboratory circumstances, and 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 it's you know it's not looking great at the moment to be honest as an experiment. You would probably say it's failed in that particular respect, and and, we, and perhaps we need to start exposing them to the sort of impacts that would actually help their immune system to 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 grow again. The assumption behind these trigger warnings is that you will absolutely be offended by this, and you, you need to be you need to steal yourself before you see. James Bond, you know, doing a Chinese impression or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are, we can all agree mm-hmm. that there are some choice moments in those films, but are they likely to precipitate a mental health episode? Is, yeah, is, and is why does question. it matter in, yeah. the, in the grand scheme of things? I think it's something that you might remark upon in a kind of film studies lesson or, mm. or you know, a younger member of your family might recoil slightly at some of the language used, but it really wouldn't previously have gone much further than that because these things shouldn't ultimately matter too much. But I think what you're, what you're saying there, Fraser, points to one of the reasons why it, why it is worth taking these things up because yeah. on the one hand, these trigger warnings, yes, they are fleeting what difference does it make? They do hold the entire audience in contempt to some degree. Um, if you very much kind of casting, particularly young people, they seem to be aimed at mm. as so fragile that they can't even engage with a piece of culture that was produced, you know, longer than five years ago. That's very irritating. I think the other thing about these trigger warnings and the fact that they're being slapped on films, increasingly books and novels. I mean, there was yeah. a kind of spate of stories recently about, you know, Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse getting a trigger warning. Mm about it might reflect attitudes that are no longer acceptable today, given that this it's a novel about kind of an upper crust family going on their holidays. It does you know, it does there's not a hell of a lot in there. It's not like they suddenly black up halfway through it, but nevertheless yeah. that was put on there. Um I think this thing that you increasingly see happening with culture, and I think particularly when it happens to popular culture of a certain vintage, I think another reason it grates on people is because it, there's this kind of implied contemptuous attitude to the sorts of things that people who are still bopping around, not necessarily that old, culture that they also enjoyed. Yeah. You know, So I think a lot of this, um, these trigger warnings and the kind of the standing in judgment, stern judgment of something like a James Bond film from mm. 30 or 40 years ago, I think people are also interpreting it as part of that broader kind of cultural condescension against yeah. people and for the things that they like and for the, the TV and the films that they used to enjoy and so on. So I think that there are reasons to oppose it. But also, as Simon said, the fundamental thing is it's obviously having the opposite effect if yeah. these things are supposedly <laughs> um, to protect against um, vulnerability and fragility amongst the population. It's clearly feeding it. I mean, trigger warnings were always supposed to be when they were first sort of came up with and you'd see them crop up in university campuses, it was very specifically supposed to be about people with PTSD or something. Yeah. And even on those terms, you know, various psychologists have pointed out it fails because you shouldn't hide, you shouldn't kind of wrap someone in cotton wool yeah. to try and protect them from their own particular actual triggers. Um, but the fact that that's now been extrapolated to all of society mm. is obviously having the effect that you're talking about, Simon. So if that's the point of it, which is to make sure that people aren't... Uh, you know, that we don't have this kind of society in which people 
fly off the handle. It's having the completely opposite <laughs> effect. Can I just add something as well that's occurring to me like, listening to you talk, and I think it's absolutely right, but it's interesting. We're having a sort of quasi-academic discussion about it, and I think that's the tone they, these things set, isn't it? And it's almost unthinkable. Even if young people did want to go along to the BFI to watch a Bond movie or one of the other Barry movies and just enjoy it and like sink into that experience, the very fact that there are trigger warnings at the beginning almost precludes the possibility of them just sitting back and enjoying it, let alone laughing out loud or feeling some excitement. They're more expected to treat it as if they're visiting a gallery and in looking at some photojournalism from Biafra or something. You can't, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at one of the horrors of the 60s, one of the, the terrible, you know, artefacts of, uh, of uh, unreconstructed masculinity before we got a handle on it. And that's a terrible shame, you know. They should be celebrating the music, the fashion, the the uh, the, the, the devil may care attitudes. But anyone who laughed out loud, it's just similar. I know as a comedian, of course. Well, as soon as you create the the possibility that other people in the room might be offended, that's it. It's over. You know, you cannot enjoy the thing. Yeah, and and I think you know, it, trigger warnings are not in a, a censorship in and of themselves. But they do also create a climate of censorship. Mm -hmm. I mean, I almost think they're a little bit like on those maps where you see here be dragons. Yeah. You know, don't go there. This is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've also seen a similar phenomenon with, with older texts is the sort of rewriting by sensitivity readers. Mm -hmm. These phenomena are, are all of a piece, even yeah. if trigger warnings are not directly censorious. No, definitely. And I think Simon described it so well as well. It, it becomes this kind of obstacle between you and the artwork mm. or you, a kind of barrier between you and what it is that you're supposed to actually be engaging in. And it casts it in a kind of suspicious light. You know, it suggests, as you were saying there, Simon, that it's a, at best it's a kind of like artifact of some bigotry that we should just examine and learn from <laughs> rather than actually enjoy in any meaningful sense. And I think it is bound up with a general kind of discomfort, not just with the potential of art and literature to shock or whatever, but also just this profound discomfort we have, even with the relatively recent past. Mm. You know, these trigger warnings, um, it's seemingly kind of slapped on anything that wasn't made five minutes ago. Um, and just seems to be that any kind of scant reminder of an era in which our, even just our, you know, whether the topics that might be discussed, the kind of stereotypes that might be bandied around, some of just the language maybe being used, a lack of representation or diversity yeah. as is currently being talked about, is so toxic and corrupting that you need to be, if not insulated from it completely, at least heavily warned about. I think just speaks to that real discomfort with... Um, any kind of vestige of how society used to be. And it's just odd because it this this sense that the bad old days, it now seems to reach up until at least the 2000s. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and that's a, that's a recent development, it feels like. That was and when it, Russell Brand was rampaging around. No, exactly. <laughs> there was a lot of articles around that. Which maybe I didn't realise it reached that far. But as you're saying, Simon, like culturally and historically, young people in particular are being encouraged to believe that there's nothing salvageable or no. enjoyable whatsoever from before then and considering the kind of cultural and to a certain extent political wasteland we've been living in for quite some time that's a very strange attitude to adopt I think yeah. I mean you see it a lot there's a conversation going on at the moment about the, between uh, Joey Barton and the rest of the world of football about whether or not female commentators know what they're talking about and so on now I don't really follow football and I don't have any well-informed view on that and I know some people who are keen on football men who, who are fine with the female commentators so I'm not sort of saying it's you know uh, it's a it's a slam dunk case, but there is again an attempt to present a, a, a view that he has that's a slightly old fashioned attitude towards 
the thing as, as deranged. I mean, I have literally seen that word used in The Guardian. There was a, there's a guy called Jonathan Yu or something, I th- uh, Liu, I think his name is, who wrote a column about right. yeah. ranting on Twitter about these women, saying that he's, you know, incoherent, you know, ra- as, if, as if he was foaming at the mouth. Well, really, he, he has a view which was com- completely normal not very long ago which is that men's football should be commentated on by men, you know. And, 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 and I suspect there are millions of men who, who still hold to that view. And there's a similar thing with the Bond movies, that they represent a, a, a worldview which was pretty predominant, you know, or at least a slightly lurid version of it. But the, but the underpinning sensibilities were, were there, that there, there are, you know, that, that it is a dream that most men have to be given an Aston Martin and a, and a, and a snug-nosed little... Pistol and, and a license to use it without application for authority, and and to go out and traverse five continents and and solve the world's problems. You know, this is a this is a, a fantasy that it was pretty universal until very very recently, and we're now really anxious, I think, about even having any more James Bond movies, even even within the the constraints that were applied by you know hiring Fleabag and and having all sorts of. You know, subplots concerning familial responsibility and so on in the last ridiculously intertwined five episodes. <laughs> I think that's kind of sad. And it is only, of course, it always has to be said, but it is only the artistic and cultural artifacts of the West that are being treated this way. Nobody is going to give you a, a trigger warning before you read some South American literature or uh, or even ancient Greek, you know, or or, or Chinese, or the uh, various animations that are that, that you know are popular in the Far East. These are all can still considered to have their own code and to be you know entitled to pursue those those beliefs with with freedom. Whereas um, the evil West is 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 beyond redemption. Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.